Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture by Linda Mays and Helena Rutherford entitled The Psychology of Parenting and Attachment, delivered in conjunction with the Schulman Seminar, Freud and Science in the 21st Century. One of the pleasures of this class that we're doing together uh, and one of the pleasures of this topic is actually the ability to cross disciplines and to try to think how do we share a common language on some of the most deeply human topics, deeply human developmental questions that's before us. And that deeply human question that we'll actually begin to touch on tonight is how does an infant's mind take shape? How does an infant become a being? A being that feels and sees and that parents attribute they attribute a mind to. And there is a huge body of literature about that, but we're actually going to approach it from another perspective. And we're actually going to approach it from the perspective of development that continues well into adulthood. Um, it is a very common metaphor about developmental studies that by the time we reach adolescence, done. Well, for those of you in Yale College, I mean, it's still happening some, but, but that, that basically after that, uh, we are as we are and starting to go downhill as adults. But actually, indeed, there are very key moments of developmental reorganization that happen all the way through adulthood. And what we are going to bring you, and we hope, into thinking about that parenting is not just one of those events that happens, that we have children, that we care for children, but that parenting actually sets in motion neurological, psychological reorganizations at the level of brain, psychology, community, family, but that, that it is a developmental event. It is an event of open plasticity and change for parents. Um, and so actually, we often think about the impact of children, parents on children. But as William has said, what we're actually going to bring you into thinking about is the impact of children on parents, and not the way we usually think about it, but that when you have a child, something dramatically happens at these multiple levels of analysis. To think about this, we actually, as we have at the top of the slide, is to say that minds, our minds, your minds, an infant's mind, are all shaped in the context of relationships. Minds just simply do not come about with a single entity. They are born in the context of relationships. And that to think this, ask this question, we've simply put a few of the fields here on the slide that actually have to come into this discourse. Psychoanalysis is one, but this brings in philosophy of mind, it brings social neuroscience, it brings notions of developmental psychopathology, and by developmental psychopathology, what I mean is actually that we are all moving in and out of adaptive periods of development all the way through old age and death. That development is a constant ebb and flow, and it is an ebb and flow because of the relationships we have. So given, what, what, given the nature of this, why we are together, what we wanted to actually do to also frame this is to begin with two texts. One is a psychoanalytic text 
The other is a very contemporary text from a new mother. The psychoanalytic text is as on this slide. And it's from Donald Winnicott, a pediatrician who was also a psychoanalyst and who spent hours upon hours observing children in his practice, but also talking to mothers and simply asking them, what was this experience like? And how was it? How are you thinking about yourself now as a mother? And the quote that you can read yourself, but it's important for me also to read it to you so that you can begin to get the emphasis of it, is that he says, I do not believe it is possible to understand the functioning of the mother at the very beginning of the infant's life without seeing that she must be able to reach this state of heightened sensitivity, heightened sensitivity, and recover from it. What I want you to hold in mind is not the recover from it. We could have another lecture on recover from it. I want you to hold in mind the notion of heightened sensitivity. And what Winnicott meant by that, here's the phenomenology he meant by that. How many of you have friends that have had new children? Uh, those of you who are, you have, uh, those of you who are in college, have you had a niece or a nephew born uh, in association with someone who's had a new child? And you've gone to talk to them. Maybe you went to have dinner with them like you often have. But on that time, when the baby was two weeks old, what you ended up during the dinner was looking at three portfolios or three CDs of pictures of the baby. And to your eye, every picture actually looked the same. You really did not actually see any difference. Uh, but to the parents, they'd say, oh, look how lovely, look, look, can you see here how his head turns? That's what Winnicott's asking. It is a state of preoccupation. It is a state where you simply cannot get the baby out of your mind, that everything about that baby is heightened, not just perfect, there's worry, but the baby is the center place of your mind, where you may have thought, you may have thought before you went into the delivery room that there was a grant that was due, and that as soon as the delivery was done, you'd have that grant done the next week, and that grant is out of your mind. It is not just a casual phenomenology. It is a phenomenology of an altered mental state that Winnicott is saying is a necessity. This is the psychology that he is saying, that this altered mental state, which Helena and I are going to actually show you that there is a basic cognitive neuroscience to, but that he is saying that this altered mental state is an absolute necessity. It's not just a byproduct that you have to enter this altered state of perceptual sensitivity, to rephrase Winnicott. Here's the text from a more contemporary mother, which you also can read, but to call your attention to it. I can't quite describe it, but something is different in me since she came into our lives. She is the center of nearly every waking moment Thoughts, plans, and when I wake up at night, she's the first thought in my head. Everything I thought was important before has slipped down the list. Not only have I centered around her, but somehow she has made me a different person. I have been transformed by this new state. Um, and I only want to be with her and attend to her every need. 
So to the first quote, I called your attention to an altered mental state that for, for the purposes of this talk, we will label preoccupation, but we'll bring you into the cognitive, cognitive frame of that. To the second quote, I want to call your attention to the, I'm a different person. I feel different, I'm altered in some way. Um, and we will bring you into some of the cognitive neuroscience of that. There's a psychology to that, but there's also a cognitive neuroscience. So the question then, that we're, what do these texts actually suggest to us, is first, that the simple one, is that becoming a parent is a developmental process. That it's not just something that happens, you are changed. There is an alteration at multiple levels of analysis. The second is that with the transition to parenthood, there is a change in attentional focus, in investment in what is rewarding, and in what is stressful. That there is an alteration in that. The third and the fourth point is that the state of being preoccupied both reflects this change in mental economy and it facilitates a shift in attention into what is rewarding. So it's both a reflection of a change in mental economy, but it also facilitates your getting to know the baby. Um, and what we're going to bring you into talking about is something that we would call, it's not poetic, it's not in the same language as a clinician immersed in seeing children all the time, but what we would call enhanced signal detection or sensitivity to infant cues. That there is a neurobiology to this that is highly, highly adaptive and highly important. There have been decades of work on the impact of parental care on child health and attachment and development. Decades. That's, there's a whole, whole areas of psychology devoted to that. But how becoming a parent impacts adults' psychological and neuropsychological development is actually a relatively new area. That's the question that's before us. That's the developmental question. How does that event in a parent's life or an adult's life impact their brain? And just to say that there's also where we will not go, though we would be glad to go in questions, is that before this became a study in humans, before this became of interest to developmental neuroscientists studying humans, there actually was at least a decade of work in animal models. But now animal models are very, very hard to look at phenomena such as preoccupation. Uh, but a nonetheless, a decade of work looking at what changes in certain regions of the brain and certain circuits with exposure to new, new, new pups. So the question really is where we're asking you to rethink parenting and to really ask the question of what's beneath these pictures. You see these pictures, you all have associations to them, you all think about what could be going on in the baby's mind or how attractive that baby is or what the mom might be saying to that baby or how sensitive, how empathic they might look. We're asking you to think about what are the mechanisms behind that? What is required for you to have these kinds of interactive moments? What must, must happen in the brain as well as must, must happen in your psychology. Before I hand over to my colleague, Dr. Rutherford, I just want to give you a, a very brief overview of the lines of work 
going on in our laboratory that really are about addressing this question. So we began with using brain imaging techniques to look at parental response to infant emotion. And those emotions are expressed as in faces or expressed as in baby cries. We look at how parents regulate their emotions when they are seeing those events or experiencing those kinds of signals. We actually are looking in a very uh, elemental way at things like parental decision-making, distress tolerance. These are all neurocognitive terms for those phenomena that all of you who have been parents actually know very well. Uh, distress tolerance is when you're actually in the supermarket with your toddler and your toddler spies the candy and doesn't want to leave. How do you get your toddler out and how do you deal with your own distress and embarrassment? That's, that's the more lively example of what distress tolerance actually is. And then we actually look at individual differences. We will talk a bit about addiction. And we begin also to look at other perceptual systems, visual and uh, vision and, and auditory are the easiest, but we are also looking at olfaction, touch, uh, things like carrying motion. So when I do this, I've sort of primed you because I've been talking about babies, but when I do this, this is a carrying motion. And you will have a perception of that as that, and there will be actually a neural response to that. And then we will bring you into talking about something about parental mindfulness, which gets back to my initial frame, is how does this mind take shape? And with time, if we have time, we'll briefly show you how we can translate or try to translate this basic neuroscience back, back then to the clinic. And how do we try to take these kind of findings and this framing back into how we work with families and children? So with that, let me turn to my colleague, Dr. Rutherford. I'm in a part of... Oh, no, sorry. Let me tell you just one other thing. Sorry, Helena. Uh, I wanted just to give you one brief thing before I turn to Helena to say that there, it is possible to study parental preoccupation and to say that while we brought you into that kind of notion, that Winnicottian notion of that change, remember, just hold the metaphor in your mind of the three CDs of images of 100 pictures of a baby per CD. Uh, that's the sort of real lived part of preoccupation. We want to show you that you actually can study it and look at that phenomenology because we're going to come back to this. So not too long ago, we actually did a study with mothers and fathers in this case, and we asked them a series of questions at two weeks after their baby was born and then at three weeks. And the questions were such questions as, how long can you go without thinking about your baby? Uh, that was one of them. Uh, to which the usual answer was about either not, not at all uh, or about two minutes. Uh, I think the outside range was an hour. It was all under an hour for this sample, which was 33 mothers and fathers, middle class. Plotted on the top, though, is a compilation of those questions where we come, if you will, to a preoccupation score and plotting seven months prior to birth up to four months after birth. And what you see, uh, the, the pink are mothers, but the blue circles or squares are fathers. And this is a question that you really should ask us um, in discussion about the, f the father effect. 
But you see that for both, there is, and especially for mothers, there is this kind of Winnicottian rise and this preoccupation, this, this altered attention prior to, right after birth, prior to birth, and immediately right after birth. And we did not follow them out far enough to actually see what happens to that going down. The second, though, on the lower part, is remember that preoccupation, this altered mental state, evolutionarily, is not just about good things. It's about being aware of all the possible dangers that might be there for your baby. So this particular acronym uh, refers to anxious, intrusive thoughts and harm-avoidant behaviors. Um, and these are the things, the worries, that you just also cannot get out of your mind. It's not just that you can't get out of your mind the positiveness of your baby, but it's the worries about your baby. And you also see a peak in that and a going down. Just briefly then, this phenomenology is that between two weeks and three months, these thoughts increase and then decrease. And what I didn't show you is remember that second quote, that as those thoughts begin to, the kind of anxious thoughts go down, parents begin to think, talk about a personal transformation, that they feel different. Experience makes a difference, that parents who were experienced parents are preoccupied, but they are actually much more like first-time parents at three months. They're not as preoccupied as first-time parents. There's individual differences, which are going to be extremely important when Helena tells you some of the neural data. There's similar patterns between mothers and fathers. And then hold on to this thought, that the greater your intensity, the greater you have entered this altered state, this altered attentional focus, the greater you perceive yourself to have been personally transformed in some way. So now I actually want to turn it over to Helena. And Helena is going to bring us back to this question of what's behind parental sensitivity. Helena, as Helena comes up, I would just say that it is one of the great pleasures to actually be able to share this with Helena. Uh, we have a great deal of fun working together, and I often think of mentoring as a kind of intergenerational transmission as well. Helena, thank you. So thank you, Linda, for setting the, the stage for, for the rest of um, what I'll be speaking about before handing back over. So what we've really been thinking about in terms of how we want you to rethink about parenting is taking the idea that there may be key brain regions that are important that underscore parenting behavior. So the two key brain regions that you'll hear a lot about for the, the course of the next few slides really are brain regions that are associated with the processing of reward and brain regions that are associated with the processing of stress. So as Linda alluded to, there's a very positive affective response to seeing a smiling infant. And you can see you know, hundreds and hundreds of photographs of infants, and you still have this very rewarding, there's an inherent motivation to care for infants. But at the same time, any parent will tell you, it could be a new parent, it could be an experienced parent, the stress plays a critical role in looking after a child. There's always going to be situations that parents find themselves in that are going to be inherently stressful. So in addition to studying reward and stress independently of each other, we're also interested in understanding more about how the two systems interact together as well. 
in such that the care for the, the joy and reward of caring for a child may downregulate some of the stress that's associated with caregiving. Likewise, the stress associated with caregiving may actually dampen the reward of looking after a child. So it's this interplay between stress and reward that we've become particularly interested in, and these brain regions associated with stress and reward really seems to be the ones that underscore parenting behavior, and we see consistently both in the animal models as well as some of the human models that are now emerging. So just to jump into this a little bit more, um, this is a little bit of a noisy slide, so I'll break it down for you in just a second. But what I want you to look at is a, this blue circle of brain regions associated with stress neural circuitry. The yellow circle is brain regions associated with reward. And the red circle are brain regions, contains brain regions associated with parenting. And this is primarily based on reviewing the animal literature, but many of these same brain regions are involved in human parenting. So what I want you to focus on is the fact that these three circles overlap, that there's a series of core brain structures that underscore parenting, reward, and stress. And so it's really those brain regions that we've become really interested in through the course of our program of research. So just to bring this to life a little bit more, this is a schematic view or a cartoon of the brain, and I've just pulled out these regions from those central overlapping circles so you can see where they are. So there's two sources of interest here. There's cortical regions, the so regions um, on the surface of the brain, the cingulate cortex, this prefrontal cortex, as well as orbital frontal cortex, that seem to be critically important in parenting behavior. Likewise, there's a series of subcortical structures. So cortical, subcortical structures are deep within the brain, like the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, as well as the striatum. And you'll hear some repetitiveness as we talk through the parenting studies, that it's these regions that seem to really stand out in human parenting studies that seem to be governing to the parental response that we're seeing. So I want you to kind of walk you through some of the neuroimaging techniques that we use. We use two main imaging techniques, and this is just to make sure that we're all on the same page when we see the data so we can understand uh, what we're looking at. So as Linda alluded to, many of our studies are in those early stages. We're simply showing photographs of infant faces to mothers or having them listen to infant cries. And so it may be their own infant's cry, it may be an unfamiliar infant cry. The baby's face we show may be smiling like this one or they may be showing um, upset and be crying. So we're interested in the familiarity of the infant to the mother, but also in terms of the emotional expressions of the infant as well. Does the maternal brain respond differently if you're looking at your own infant crying compared to an unfamiliar infant crying? So we take a very simplistic approach to this to begin with, and you'll get a sense that we're only just starting to scratch the surface of the research that we're doing right now. So we use two main um, imaging techniques. The first is functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. And so fMRI is really useful in knowing where in the brain is responsive to these infant stimuli. So where in the brain do we see a response to an infant cry or an infant face? So that's what we use fMRI for. If we're interested in when, in time, that the parental brain response is happening, we use a technique called event-related potentials. And I'm just going to walk you through both of those briefly. So fMRI is one of the techniques that we use um, to understand about where. So we have subjects lie in an MRI scanner. So um, we have some in, um, in the psychiatry department, but also you have the MRI, scan MRI scanners in the hospital. So it's the same principles. We have subjects lie in the scanner, and we just take photographs or, or images of the brain and look during our different experimental conditions, so listening to infant cries or looking at infant faces, what are the different types of brain response we see. So on the far side, you can just see a photograph of the brain, which is just taken at rest. Here you can see there's some functional activation. So these colors of red and green. And so those are showing us regions in the brain that come online whilst our parents are listening to our infant stimuli. 
So we use fMRI principally if we want to understand where and how these differences or these different brain regions come online as a function of different parents. So it's not like there's a one-size-fits-all approach and every parent's brain is responding in the same way. And you'll get a sense from the data there's a lot of individual differences with that. So the event-related potential technique is one that we use when we want to know more about when. So one of the pieces that Linda talked about at the beginning was about signal detection. How fast is the brain's response to seeing infant faces or listening to infant cries? So that's where the event-related potential technique is useful because it has millisecond accuracy. So what we're doing in ERP research is we're measuring brain activity from the surface of the scalp and we're averaging that together whilst people watching these infant faces or listening to these infant cries. So you'll see a lot of these diagrams in the talk, and this is what this brainwave data looks like. So it's less intuitive than the MRI images, but it gives us this temporal precision that we wouldn't get otherwise. So on the horizontal line or the x-axis is always going to be time. So this is time in the order of milliseconds. So you'll get a sense very quickly that we're getting very rapid responses to infant cries and infant faces in our parent samples. And on the vertical axis, or the, um, the y-axis, is the strength of that signal. So we're not only interested in when that signal is happening in response to a query, we're also interested in how fast that response is. So you'll get a sense as we go through that sometimes we'll see differences in how big the signal is in response to infant cries, and sometimes you'll see we can observe a delay in that, that same signal response. So that's when we're using ERPs. So we're using this complementary techniques of ERP and fMRI so we can capitalize on both across space and time domains to understand more about the parenting brain. So you can get a sense it's becoming um, more heavily neuroscience as we go through, but this is hopefully will give you a sense of what the data is showing. So what we thought would be a good place to start is to try and convince you that, this, um, that we can measure preoccupation in parents to begin with. So if what we're saying is correct, that this is distinct developmental stage, we should be able to observe differences between parents and non-parents. If parents have really entered this preoccupied state, we should be able to measure this at the level of the brain. So one of the first studies to attempt this was an ERP study looking at mothers and non-mothers and had these, these women listen to infant cries. So just to orient you to um, the, the figure again, time is on this horizontal axis and the amplitude or size of signals on the y-axis. And what the blue circle is highlighting there is the differences between mothers and non-mothers when listening to that infant cry. It's very intuitive and as you would predict, mothers are having a stronger response to infant cry relative to the non-mothers. So this is one of the first studies to support this notion that preoccupation may actually exist and that we do see neural differences emerging between parents and non-parents. So expanding on this point, the, there was a shift then to think less about infant cry and more about infant faces. So what can we learn from the processing of infant faces? So this was a study that had parents and non-parents, so included both mothers and fathers in their parent category, look at a series of photographs of infant faces. And so what you can see here is that mothers and non-mothers and fathers and non-fathers were looking at discomfort infant faces and distressed infant faces. And the critical factor here is, is the fact that the distressed infant faces you know, are very much more emotional than the discomfort infant faces are. So if you look at the brain waves, the blue line and the green line represent discomfort and distress um, in the figures, you can see there's a very different pattern of response in the parents if they're looking at just the distressed images relative to the discomfort images. But if you look then at the non-parents, you can see that those lines are very clearly overlapping, that the waveforms from the brain are not differentiating discomfort from distress in the non-parents. 
So the first study was really showing us that there is a different response to cry within mothers compared to non-mothers. But the second study is really telling us that parents are differentiating at the level of the brain smaller amounts or smaller increments of infant negative affect in a way that non-parents aren't doing. So this state of preoccupation not only differentiates parents from non-parents in just their general responsiveness to infant cues, but also in their sensitivity and differentiating different types of negative affect. So we wanted to expand this notion a little bit more and move beyond just perception of infant signals into actually cognitive elements associated with parenting. So to do this, we got interested in emotion regulation. And as Linda gave some really nice examples, there's a number of situations you find yourself in with both infants, toddlers, as well as adolescents that you really need to regulate your emotions well. So what we had both mothers and non-mothers do was to view a series of photographs of infant faces. And so you can see that the infants are showing distress. All the infants were crying. And we wanted to just, just begin with, get a basic sense of what the neural response is whilst they looked at these photographs of these infant faces. After they've done this, we gave them instructions to then either increase their emotional response or decrease their emotional response to seeing these pictures. Presumably, we would imagine that there should be a differential neural response if you were regulating your emotions during these conditions. So we had mothers and non-mothers view these stimuli, increase their emotional response, and then decrease their emotional response. So this is an ERP study, so here are the waveforms. So um, again, time on the x-axis, and I've boxed out here the region of the waveform that we know is associated with emotion regulation. So the lower dashed line, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a bit um, unclear, it's just that viewing condition where they're just looking at each of the infant faces in turn and the non-mothers. And you can see the black and the gray lines uh, representing those increase and decrease emotional conditions. When non-mothers were asked to regulate their emotions, we saw an increase in the neural response as though they were actively engaging in that task during these regulatory conditions. The mothers showed a very different pattern of response though. So you can see now that there's no difference when they're just looking at these infant faces relative to when they're increasing and decreasing their emotions to those infant faces. And you can see the main difference between the two figures, just flipping back, and then fourth is a shift in this baseline condition when we're just asking mothers to look at the infant faces. It's as though they're implicitly regulating their emotions from the outset as soon as they see these visual stimuli. So we've now replicated these findings in a separate group of mothers, and we've actually been able to show now that this is an infant-specific effect. If we show mothers a series of gory photographs and get them to upregulate and downregulate, they look like the non-mothers do for the infant stimuli. It's something very specific about infant faces that they implicitly and automatically regulate their emotions to. So I hope I've given you some evidence to suggest that this preoccupation phase exists and we can measure it from a neurobiological perspective. So I want to focus in on just a couple of the studies that have looked specifically at mothers themselves. And again, just to remind you that we're really interested in these brain regions associated with stress and these brain regions associated with reward. So this was a study that a colleague of ours, Lane Strathburn, conducted a few years ago now, and he was just interested in the basic neural response using fMRI to viewing photographs of infant faces. And he had first-time mums look at both their own infant's face as well as unfamiliar infant faces and looked at whether infants were smiling, crying, or just looking you know, more of a neutral expression to see if there was any difference there. So the main take-home message really from this finding, and it's not surprising, is that if you're looking at photographs of your own baby, it doesn't matter if they're smiling or if they're crying, the brain response is always stronger relative to an unfamiliar infant baby's face. Moreover, if it's your own baby and they're smiling at you, that has the strongest reward response in the brain, that it's the most inherently rewarding thing that a mother can look at in terms of these neuroimaging studies. So he extended this finding then to try and look more into individual differences. 
and to try and understand more about mother's past experiences and how that may impact the maternal brain response. So in this study, he grouped mothers to either be securely attached or insecurely attached. And when we talk about attachment security, we're talking about the mother's past relationships when they're asked to describe their own father and their own mother and, the, um, and how they view those relationships, what they learn from those relationships, and how they feel that they've influenced their relationships in the future. So securely attached mothers are typically those mothers who are able to report um, relationships where, with their parents that while they may have had some bad things as well as some good things, they're very insightful and reflective about that, and that influence, that's influenced their own decisions and their own parenting behaviors as a consequence. Insecurely attached mothers are those mothers, um, and when I talk about those mothers, it could be applied to non-mothers, it could apply to men, um, fathers and non-fathers as well. But insecurely attached individuals are those individuals who can describe the relationship with their parents, but really get preoccupied with the emotional aspects of it, get very stressed, get very worked up, or they may just shut down completely and not want to talk about their relationship with their parents. And so it's a normative piece. Everybody in this room, you're, we can think about our relationships with our parents, and it's really a way of thinking about how past relationships influence future relationships. So what Lane did in this study is he asked um, mothers again to look at photographs of infant faces. In addition to that, he also took blood assays to measure a hormone called oxytocin. So oxytocin's been in the media a lot. It's one of the most popular hormones at the moment. And it's a hormone associated with social behavior as well as maternal behavior more generally. And so what he found, and what you can see in the top left figure there, is that in these securely attached mothers, they had a stronger oxytocin response to playing and experiencing time with their infant than the insecurely attached mothers did. So this suggests that this attachment relationship um, seems to have a predictive function in terms of hormonal response. What's even more interesting though in this MRI scan here is showing you the brain regions that come online when these same group of mothers were looking at photographs of their infant faces. And the amount of activity that you can see in this slide correlates with the amount of hormonal response that they were able to measure during the interactions with their children. So there seems to be this very tightly coupled relationship between maternal brain and maternal hormones, and that seems to be tied specifically to the engagement with your child. He then just contrasted and looked as well at securely and insecurely attached mothers in other regions of the brain. And so he found here across the board, the securely attached mothers typically had a stronger brain response to looking at their own infant faces than the insecurely attached mothers. So you can see these in the line graphed here. So the one difference, though, is when insecurely attached mothers were looking at their own infant crying, you can see here the pattern of activity was actually greater than it was in the securely attached mothers. And this activity was central to a region called the insula, a region that's associated with processing negative emotions like distress and discomfort. Um, and so what the hypothesis here is that perhaps for, for insecurely attached mothers, Really seeing your own infant upset is, is inherently more distressing for them than the security attached mothers. So up until this point, we've kind of laid a foundation for you about preoccupation, some differences coming out in mothers, and we really wanted to kind of give you a sense of why this is important clinically, because it's all well and good looking at parents and understanding more about parenting, but we wanted to give you a context in which it's important clinically and thinking about how this research can be translated. So we focus on addiction primarily because the regions associated with addiction are those regions of stress and reward. And I'm just going to walk you through how we've related that to some of our parenting models. So it's no surprise that substance use during pregnancy is bad and um, that a number of women are continuing to use substances during pregnancy as well as into the postpartum period. 
And that's, that has detrimental effects, not only in terms of fetal development, but also once a child is born, it can have significant effects in the postpartum environment as well. So we know that substance use in mothers and fathers is associated with increased rates of neglect as well as abuse. So what we're interested in is trying to take this notion of addiction in parents into more of a neurobiological domain. So the way that we've been thinking about addiction, the way that others have been thinking about addiction, is this dysregulation between these reward brain circuits and these stress brain circuits. And there seems to be a transition from what we call positive reinforcement to negative reinforcement. So positive re reinforcement refers to this initial rewarding, this inherent hedonic value of using substances for the first time. But over time, continued drug use leads to the relief of negative emotional states of abstinence, that state of withdrawal, that leads to habitual use over time. So that's our negative reinforcement element, that you're using something to help relieve negative emotions, which is rewarding in and of itself. So it's as though the reward system is co-opted to mean habitual behavior associated with relief of negative emotions, and these become generalized over time to include other facets of life which are stressful. So this reward system, as we're proposing, is co-opted in order to maintain habitual drug use. It may be the case that other rewards are not as salient. And for the purposes of our reasons for being here this evening, these rewards may include social affiliation as well as relationships, and critically, infant cues. So what we become interested in is understanding more about how substance-using parents perceive infant cues and what the reward response is to that. So our working prediction is that caring for an infant may be less rewarding and in fact may be more stressful for substance using parents. And so again, just to remind you of these regions, so now what we're proposing is instead of the stress reward system being balanced in substance using and addicted parents, we're now saying it's out of balance, that these parents are generally finding caring for an infant more stressful and actually less rewarding. And there's a number of um, self-report studies and epidemiological studies kind of supporting this, but today we're only starting to look at the neurobiology of this now. And why is this further important even more so is because of the implicit link between stress and craving for substances. So there's a large body of research coming out of the psychiatry department here looking at this relationship between stress and craving. And what it seems to be in, in addicted individuals that the more stress they get, the more likely they are to crave. There's this implicit link between stress and craving. And our concern is if there's this increasing craving during caretaking situations, that what the consequences of this for the infant and the caretaking of the infant. And just to say, you know, front and center, that this may not be true of all substance-using parents, but this may be an individual difference factor that we need to unpack more, that there may be some protective factors, and we've certainly seen that in some of the mothers we work with, that seem to override this stress and craving um, impact. So just to give you some of the data that we've started to look at in terms of understanding more about this relationship between stress, parenting, and addiction. So this was a study that we have been working at asking, and we our addiction group here was smokers, and we compared those to non-smokers. And so we had our mothers all come in and describe situations that were related to stress for caring for an infant. So a lot of the, the stories that we were hearing about were fussy, dysregulated infants who would just cry and cry non-stop, often in the middle of the night, and the mothers were at the wit's end of knowing what to do. We also had some instances of older children misbehaving, particularly in public places, and that was inherently stressful to a lot of the mothers as well. We then asked them to also describe some situations unrelated to caregiving that um, they found particularly stressful. So there were practical issues like being unemployed, not being able to pay rent, and the role of mother-in-laws in parenting in stress in mothers seems to be very high. The number of stories heard about how stressful relationships were, both in their immediate family as well as their extended family, were also sources of stress. 
So what we were interested in was contrasting the stress related to caring for a child in, rel in relation to stress unrelated to caring for a child. So we have this hypothesis that caring for a child is stressful, but the question is, is that really true? Or is it equally as stressful as other life events? So we had mothers come and describe these events, and we had them come back a week later, and we played those events to them. And so what I'm going to show you is um, the data that we had when we asked them to tell us how much they were craving cigarettes during this period. For the, this was for the smoking mums. For the non-smoking mothers, we just asked them how much they were craving for their favorite comfort food. And so this is what the data looks like. So we took three measures of craving. So we asked them just before they heard the stressful story, just afterwards, and then 10 minutes later. And the blue line is for when they were listening to a story unrelated to caring for their child, and the red line was when they were talking and listening to a story about their own child. So you can see at baseline at the first time point, there's no difference for cigarette craving. But over time, you can see that listening to the story related about when they were caring for their own child increased craving significantly, both straight after hearing that story as well as 10 minutes later. So it's as though this stressful story um, for parents when they're thinking about their own child was significantly more so effective in increasing craving than it was listening to a non-caretaking story. In the non-smoking mothers, though, we saw no difference in how much they craved their comfort food at the beginning, after the story, and at the end. And there was no difference between the, the different types of stories, so the parenting story and the non-parenting story. So suggesting that it could be there's a specific interaction here for our substance-using parents about the stress of caring for a child. We've also, as you can imagine, done fMRI studies on these women as well. So we had them, again, look at these examples of infant faces, so happy, sad, and neutral, and we also had them listen to infant cries. And across the board, we found that the substance-using mothers had a lower neural response to these stimuli compared to the non-substance-using mothers. We saw this for both faces as well as for cries. And critically, as you'll see in the text, these prefrontal cortical and these subcortical regions that were less in the neural response. So these regions that we think are principally important in caretaking behavior. We also did an ERP study with the same group of mothers. And so what I've just pulled out here is, an, is a waveform called the N170, which is specific to the perception of faces. And we found in substance-using mothers that this brain response to an infant face was significantly delayed relative to the non-substance-using mothers. So not only is there just a reduction in the brain response, there's also a delay in the brain response um, when seeing these infant stimuli. And finally, we also looked at oxytocin levels, this hormone associated with maternal behavior. And we found uh, across a couple of manipulations that in general the, the, amount of subs, uh, the amount of oxytocin in substance-using mothers is significantly less than the non-substance-using mothers. So one of the directions we want to go in with this research is not only look at brain, but also look at behavior. So we're very experimentally driven at the moment. We're very driven by using these neuroimaging techniques, but ultimately we want to learn more about how this relates to parenting behavior. So we've really started to try and be a bit more innovative in how we go about this. And so we want, one of the examples that we, we've been interested in is understanding more about how parents tolerate infant distress. And so we have to be ethically sensitive in how we do this and also be practical in terms of we can't have mothers interacting with their infants for an extended period of time whilst the infant's fussy. So the way we've got around this is to use an infant simulator. So this is Catherine. She's our simulator. And so Catherine is designed to be um, four to six months in age. So she weighs and she feels very much like... Um, a fairly newborn baby would do. And she's computer controlled to elicit cries. She has a speaker built into her stomach and we are set up in another room with a laptop and we can control the rate of crying and how much Catherine cries for. 
So we have mothers come in and we get them to interact with Catherine. So we, at the beginning of the visit, will show Catherine crying and we'll explain to the mothers that Catherine responds in the same way a real baby would do. And so after about two minutes of Catherine crying, we feed Catherine and Catherine stops crying. Um, so that it looks very plausible that this is actually a task that mothers can engage in um, and be successful at. We then leave the mothers alone in the room with Catherine and we set Catherine crying. And whilst the mother feels that she can soothe Catherine in some way, in reality, nothing she will do will stop Catherine from crying. She's just going to keep crying. So we leave a bell in the room and we set the task up as, we want you to soothe Catherine, but if you've had enough, just ring the bell and we'll finish the interaction. And we'll let Catherine cry for up to 20 minutes before we'll stop the interaction. And so we get a huge amount of individual differences in how long people will persist in soothing with Catherine. Some people will carry on for just two minutes, some people will take 10 minutes, and we have a number of what we call 20-minute mums that persist for the full 20 minutes and say that they would actually go on for longer afterwards as well. Unsurprisingly, Catherine increases blood pressure. She also increases heart rate. So we know what we're tapping into is a good stress response. So one of our first findings from using this infant simulator is presented here. So on this um, vertical axis is time in seconds, so how long people are persisting in soothing Catherine. And on the horizontal axis is a measure that we use to understand more about parental mindfulness, so the interest and curiosity that parents have, and this is in relation to their own infant. So we found a positive relationship such that the more interested parents were in their own infants in having a state of mind and being able to perceive the world around them, the longer that they were persisting with trying to soothe Catherine. So we've been able to take this very experimentally innovative task and link that up to actually how parents are thinking about their own child and their own child's awareness of the world around them. So we've kind of pursued this mindfulness and this um, mindful approach to parenting in other dimensions as well. So this is just some pilot data that we've obtained recently in first-time mothers and on the horizontal axis is a measure of mindfulness. So the ability to attend to your own emotions and your own feelings and thoughts. And on the vertical axis is measures of anxiety. So we find a very tightly coupled relationship between how anxious a mother is and how mindful they are. So the more mindful they are, the less likely they are to be anxious. And we find this primarily in first-time mothers, so it suggests this may be a useful avenue to be thinking about when we start exploring um, some of our clinical samples as well. So before handing back to Linda, I just wanted to summarize briefly to hopefully give you a sense that there are differences between parents and non-parents in terms of their brain response, and hopefully soon in terms we'll have some behavioral data as well. And that there's a number of individual differences that are important in understanding about these changes in brain and behavior. We use addiction as a really good example of trying to understand this work clinically because of the inherent importance of reward and stress to addiction and those same brain regions being important in parenting. And finally, it seems to be there's a number of ways that we can start looking at understanding more about parenting behavior in terms of both reflection as well as um, mindfulness too. So I'm now going to pass this back to Linda. Thank you very much, Helena. So what I want to actually do is to reframe, not to reframe, but to frame again. Um, and actually bring you into a translational opportunity, which is to begin to talk together about how some of the basic science that we have just really introduced, just introduced you to, how that potentially informs uh, prevention and intervention programs for parents, how we can begin to, to make a clinical case. And so actually, before I do that, though, I want to, to try and, and bring us, in a sense, we've, we've taken a brief tour through the brain, very brief tour through the brain, and now I want to bring it back, in a sense, to phenomenology. And I'd like you to just imagine, imagine this story as you see these pictures. 
Um, you can imagine the age of that baby up there. You can imagine that maybe the grandparent has brought the baby a, what the grandparent thought was an extraordinarily fascinating new toy. And the baby is saying, whoa. But what's most important in that picture is detecting that baby's potentially, you could even imagine that right before it, the baby had a smile. And that smile fleeted into that expression. And interpreting that and detecting that. And if you detect it as potentially reading that what's on your baby's mind at that moment is a, is a moment of fear, and remember, we're looking at these moments when we're doing EEG studies, we're actually looking at those long before it's consciously aware. What we call the N170 is 170 milliseconds after you have seen the event, long before you actually can say what I just said. So, so there's a signal detection moment going on. And here's the frame I want to bring you into, which is really a basic attachment frame. That the baby, if you want to call this new toy a threat, will use the attachment language. That the baby sees that, the baby experiences some distress and fear, that activates an attachment system, a look for where's my mom. The mom comes, comforts the baby, and then there's a down regulation and the baby looks like this. That's standard. That's a standard infant development story. But what we're talking about is actually what has to happen right here. Between here and here. What actually has to happen is the caregiver has to recognize the baby's distress that shift from the smile to those big eyes and the caregiver also has to recognize their own distress. Oh my goodness, I thought they were really going to like that toy. What have I done? And that is a moment that is also very fast, but this is what we're talking about. This is the phenomenology that we're actually talking about. And so what we're saying is that becoming a parent brings a change in a mental economy makes you better at it with the shift in attention, so an enhanced signal detection. You recognize those big eyes, and you, re and you read them, not as fascination, but you read them as, oh, might be a little too much for the baby. And then your sensitivity and your increased emotional awareness. That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying phenomenologically, and then this is the model that we're talking about. You have an infant cue. Uh, hold on, hold on to those big eyes. That's an infant cue. There's a signal detection moment. That's the moment that probably is out of conscious awareness. It's happened extremely quickly. There's a parent emotional response that then feeds then the parent's ability to interpret that. So this first, what Helena has shown you is, an, is, is briefly has data about the signal detection part. The interpretation part happens more in the front part of the brain, and that is a bit slower, but that all then feeds into parental behavior. This is the loop that happens thousands of times a day. This is the model that we're breaking down. And if you've had enough experience with your baby in another language, if you've internalized your baby's social repertoire, 
then you can begin to anticipate it. You can begin to really make this loop work faster. And to bring it back to the language that we had before, let me just go back to here. What we're saying is that the preoccupied state, this preoccupied state prepares you actually to be a better detector. This Winnicottian preoccupied state sets you up attentionally to actually be a better signal detector so that you can actually make this system work. That's really the simple point we're making. But there are a number of threats, and that's what Helena brought you into. There are a number of threats to this, this altered parental mental economy. The first one is early adversity in the parent's own experience. So parents who, as, as children themselves, and that's when Helena showed you some of the attachment literature, Lane Strathern, Own Baby, Other Baby. If you've had your own adverse experiences as a child, that translates into, as an adult, an altered stress reward system. And that becomes a threat, if you will, to this altering economy that we're calling. Second is depression, addiction, and anxiety, and the chronic stress related to poverty, domestic violence, and all the more difficult challenges that adults find themselves in when they also are caring for children. Now remember, remember when I showed you very early about the interview study where I showed you in the levels of preoccupation and I said there were individual differences in level of preoccupation and that, that was an important finding? It's an important finding because what predicts to those individual differences? And parents who are under chronic stress, parents who are struggling with addiction, struggling with depression, find it much more difficult to enter this preoccupied state it does not happen as readily or as intensely. And we are making the argument in a different language than Winnicott did, but we are making the argument that this preoccupied state prepares the brain and the mind for beginning to learn about your baby. And if you can't enter that state or you enter it in a different level of intensity, then the argument is that this model doesn't work as well. So for example, just where the red arrows are. If you don't enter it as well, the parent signal detection is off. Your emotional response may be off. You, if your signal detection is off, then you may not be interpreting the baby's needs in a way that is as accurate or as helpful for the baby. So this whole loop, if you will, is off. And indeed, just one other data slide we know from collaborators of ours, and we are also now gathering similar data, that addicted or cocaine-using mothers show diminished oxytocin response and greater perceived stress in response to crimes. So, one other piece to fill you in. When I showed you that actual loop just a minute ago, the attachment loop, the baby brought big eyes, the mother detects it, baby comfort. What happens when you're a parent and you're afraid that you're and you're worried about that you just showed your, the baby that toy is you are dealing also with your own negative affect as well as hoping that you'll be able to help the baby. 
So you're dealing with the stress of what might be happening or going to happen and the reward of being with your baby. In normative circumstances, we actually use that anticipation of the reward, the beauty of being with the baby, those circuits that Helena showed you, we use that to downregulate our stress. But if you're actually addicted and struggling with that, what happens is that, is this, and this is what Helena was bringing you into, that if you're addicted or struggling or you have, or your baby's cues are not as rewarding or they are more stressful, what happens is that the, you have high stress, low reward. You turn away from the baby and rather turn to your habitual behaviors that you do, such as drug use, to reduce your stress. You turn away, that leads to more neglect or abuse, which then makes an intergenerational cycle. So that's the model that we're trying to test. And that's the tragedy. So we have brought you into this sort of normal developmental notion that, that we all develop across time and as, as adults we develop into parents. But where we're now going in the last three minutes is to basically say for a number of parents that developmental piece is off course. And it's off course in many ways because of their early experience themselves. And so they cannot enter this state. And so there's two ways that we tend to think about intervening with parents. One is this parental mindfulness to actually help parents become more aware of their own feelings and their baby's feelings. And another is to increase the parental social networks. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because actually what we'd really like to do is to have more questions from you. And just simply to say that at the Trial Study Center, we actually have a number of programs, intervention programs for parents that emerge out of this basic science. And we'd be delighted to talk about them in any way. Um, I'm not going to actually spend time on them because I really do want to take questions. Um, so let me just skip those and bring it back to the final points. So we began with, with a notion of psychoanalysis, and this is a course about integrating psychoanalysis with neuroscience or across disciplines. That's what we're about. Um, I'd like to say that we have magical answers. It's just really easy, you know. Uh, here's what Freud said, and here's what we say now, and it, it equates. No. Nope. <laughs> um, I'd also like to say that integration is extremely easy. It's actually a challenge. Uh, so let me just offer some ideas of where to tie it back but to simply say that these are ideas offered in the spirit, really, of encouraging discussion. The first idea is to say that parents, an infant's mind, by psychoanalytic theory, takes shape in how parents see them. And what I mean by that, uh, what I mean by that is when a parent says to the baby, you are such a strong baby, you remind me of my uncle. Uh, you know, you, uh, I just know that when you grow up, you're going to be X, Y, Z. That is conveying to the baby a perception of who he or she is. That's what we mean in psychoanalytic theory. But where does that come from, from parents? Where does that perception come from? Where does that, when you see someone do kick wildly in the crib, that it reminds them of their uncle? It comes from their own early experience. It comes from the stories. It comes from the caregiving that they received. That is a basic psychoanalytic idea 
that we actually care for each other and we care for our children based on those ways that we were cared for. Notice I'm not using psychoanalytic jargon. I'm just saying that there is within psychoanalysis a built-in notion of intergenerational transmission. Last week, and I apologize for those of you in the audience who weren't in the class, but last week John Forrester made the, the statement that repetition was the central psychoanalytic idea, that we do things that we repeat over and over. Well, one of the things about this intergenerational transmission of parenting is actually that it, there's a repetition in caregiving situations. We parent as we were parented. Clinicians sitting in this audience know that repeatedly. And you shake your head and say, gosh, just like their mother, just like their father. Those are the central psychoanalytic ideas that really integrate. But let me on just this last point say that there also is an emerging neurobiology about repetition in parenting. And it emerges from animal models. And just now, human models are much harder to do this because we, sadly, for science, we have longer generations. Uh, rats have shorter generations. Uh, but there actually is a, a neurobiology of the repetition, if you will, or the intergenerational transmission of individual differences in parenting behavior that appears to be built into various neural systems and appears to be partially, at least, regulated by changes in the regulatory aspects of the gene, and especially genes that regulate stress response. So I'm not going to go into that anymore except to say that there is, that the central notion that you want to carry from this is that parenting, how you were parented, impacts how you parent, and that that is also a very central psychoanalytic idea. So let me just close with some summary points for you so to just tell you what we have said. First, that we've said that the transition to parenthood is a very key adult developmental phase. If you remember nothing else, just take in the idea that it is an adult developmental phase. It's like adolescence. <laughs> adolescence is in a developmental phase. Uh, infancy is a developmental phase. Young adulthood is a developmental phase. And what that means is that there's rapid change going on at multiple levels of analysis. That's the first point. The second point is that understanding these basic neural mechanisms underlying individuals' differences in parenting, actually, while we didn't go into it very much, has the potential to inform how we think about and what we do with families. And then the final point is that we've been talking about adults. Most of the ways we talk about clinical services for at-risk families are for children. What we're arguing is that taking this sort of basic science and forming interventions for adults and coupling it with interventions for children is the most effective way to make an impact. We say that in a way to encourage discussion. This kind of work uh, actually really does require an enormous number of colleagues and collaborators, and we very much want to thank them, um, to acknowledge them, um, and wish that they were here with us as well. And then also just to simply say thank you to all of you. Uh, there's our email address, or addresses. Uh, very welcome to questions on email, but more importantly, would actually really welcome questions and discussion right now. 
it's raining out there. It's, you know, there's no need to go out in the bad weather. Uh, so, so thank you so much for your attention, but really have questions. The Schulman Seminars and Lectures at Yale University are intended to introduce important topics in science and the humanities to a general audience. The preceding lecture by Linda Mays and Helena Rutherford was delivered in the spring of 2013 in conjunction with the seminar, Freud and Science in the 21st Century. The lecture took place in Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on February 19, 2013.